Hello, and welcome to the IBCD Care and Discipleship Podcast. I'm Craig Marshall, and with me today is Dr. Jim Neuheiser, who's IBCD's Executive Director and also the Associate Professor of Christian Counseling at RTS Charlotte. And we also have with us today Tom Maxim, who's a pastor at Grace Bible Church in Escondido, and he's one of our counselors here at IBCD and also on the advisory board. Today, we're going to be talking through some issues regarding a really difficult topic, uh, the topic of abuse. And this is based on a question that we received from one of our listeners. And let me read the question, and then guys, we'll just uh, kind of talk through some of the issues involved in this. The question says, how should my wife and I counsel a marriage where the husband is verbally abusive? He says he wants us to talk with his wife, but she says when we do so, he yells at her for it. It's one of those situations where when they meet together, everything seems fine, but then on the way home, he unloads on her. And he, they also note that the man is a sla- enslaved to alcohol and is currently in recovery, um, but he does continue to drink sometimes. So it sounds like they're increasingly aware of, of this volatile situation and then wondering also as they're counseling them together, uh, is some of what they're doing making the situation worse or, or how do they handle that? So guys, as you hear that, and especially this idea of verbally abusive, what, what comes to mind of how we should approach it? Well, to begin, uh, God's word is not silent on the topic of verbal abuse, emotional abuse. In Proverbs twelve eighteen, it says, there's one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing and in Proverbs 11, verse 9, it says, With his mouth, the godless man destroys his neighbor. So God is well aware of the severity of uh, verbal abuse, and he likens it here to um, the effects of physical abuse. And if you talk to women who've been uh, legitimately verbally and emotionally abused over the years, they'd say, I'd rather he hit me than to put me through this kind of thing. So God's well aware. But I think the church can grow and mature and be uh, much more aware of how to handle these things. We can handle the typical marriage issues and we can handle the physical abuse, but there is lots of room for growth in the area of handling uh, verbal and and emotional abuse. God knows and God's word is sufficient for it. We we just need to um, develop that area. Now it is happening. People are speaking on it. Um, there's a, a book out called The Heart of Domestic Abuse by Chris Moles, and it is an excellent resource um, for this very topic. I think when you are addressing abuse of all kinds, you begin, a good place to begin is in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer. If you call him a name, you deserve the punishment for a murderer. And so, as Tom said, the Lord takes these sins very seriously. And yet there is a degree, there's a a spectrum of how bad this is. And it's like in the very next section, Jesus says, if you've lusted, you've committed adultery. Now, a man who has literally committed adultery or worse, raped somebody or something, that's obviously one absolute end of the scale. The guy who was walking down the street and saw a girl with shorts on and glanced and then looked away, he was still in that range, but it's a much different degree. And in the same way with abuse, you have murder. I heard a literal case where someone was angry and killed the other person recently, a friend. And you can have physical violence and beating somebody. You can have all the way to the other end of the scale where you're angry. When I get sinfully angry, I just don't make eye contact with my wife and I don't talk much, which is highly unusual. 
And so uh, you've got to do some data gathering to find out exactly what's being said or done in order to know what you're dealing with and in terms of the safety of the other person. But even in the category of verbal abuse, uh, there is screaming, threatening someone's life, doing things in public places. So there, there are degrees as opposed to someone who got loudly grumpy about the other party being late to a meal. I think when it comes to the person who is guilty, taking them to Matthew 5, where Jesus explains the nature of hatred in your heart and sinful words to recognize, as Tom said, that the Lord looks at what you're doing as he looks at physical abuse. I understand there are degrees in the spectrum, but that's how much God hates this and how seriously he takes it and how much it is wounding to the person. And I've often had cases where you have somebody who would, in his mind, the man would think it unimaginable that he would actually strike his wife, and he's proud of the fact he's never done so. But then he's beating her to a pulp with his tongue, which has the power to destroy and he needs to see that sin as God sees it, as being serious. And then one step back behind that would be, what is it in his heart? And Jesus in Mark 7, it says, murder comes out of the heart. It's, it's not caused by other people. It's our own sinfulness. James says we kill when we don't get what we want, James chapter 4. And so not just addressing the behavior, count to 10 before you yell or run out of the house when you think he's going to yell, but what is in the heart that he wants, that he demands, and how can he repent of that idolatrous desire, which leads to the cycle of abuse? Why do you think it seems it seems in the church there's a, a hesitancy to acknowledge sometimes the validity of, of verbal and emotional abuse? Why do you think sometimes we're hesitant to go there uh, with someone? I think using the label abuse is frightening both to the guilty party, thinking that he's being labeled as someone who's giving his wife a black eye when really he did something at a different point on the continuum. Even from the standpoint of the church, I think some people would be, some church leaders would be fearful if you label that behavior, quote, abuse, then you might be giving license for separation or divorce, which is not really where you want to go with that. And like you said, Craig, it, people tend to go to one extreme or the other. I've seen situations where a wife is told by church leadership, just she needs to be quiet. I think they misapply First Peter 3. Yeah, just let him keep verbally beating you to a pulp or pushing you around. And if you were a better wife, you wouldn't be doing that. And that is a deplorable reaction on the part of church leadership. And church leadership has the responsibility to investigate an accusation like that, to confront the guilty party with the seriousness of his sin. But now in reaction against that, there's almost swinging to another extreme, which would be like every time a man ever noticed a billboard with a girl on it, his wife suddenly has grounds for divorce on adultery, that any slight expression of anger is treated the same as gross physical abuse. And so we have to be very, very careful, very discerning. This is where it's so helpful to have godly church leaders involved in helping the victim of abuse to see where they are when they need to be safe. 
uh, and the Bible doesn't say here is exactly the point at which you take action or it's so bad that they need to be apart. And to further answer that, um, I, I agree the range of sin on the part of the verbal abuse makes it difficult, but also um, usually it's a wife who's being treated that way in most cases, but also if the wife doesn't respond in, uh, in a biblical way, it can confuse the situation. It can make it look like she's at fault, she's provoking, um, or a wife's anger can confuse the situation. A wife's ungodly responses can um, delay getting the proper help and getting the proper resolve. Um, the proper authority being applied to the situation through the church. Or a wife could hide these things for, for years. Um, but that said, I do think we need to do more in the area of verbal and emotional abuse. Proverbs 31 says, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. So I think there, there um, needs to be more done and even more church discipline in the area of, of verbal and emotional abuse. Tom, what are some of the ways, I mean, Jim's mentioning here, um, this continuum and, and needing to get a better understanding of what's going on. What are some helpful, I guess, categories to be thinking in of possibly abusive behaviors? And then even we were talking about the difficulty of that word like abuser and the weight of that. What are helpful ways you can talk about these behaviors? What behaviors are we looking for? Part of the answer to that is... Um you need to really understand what's going on. Um, you might hear of one particular behavior and it on its own um, wouldn't rise up to the category of abuse. It could be um, a very um, irritating behavior, a controlling behavior, but you might not label it abuse. Um, but as you gather more data and you put together the, the string of things, you put together all the different events. So the totality of it begins to make it more clear on on how abusive, like if, if a man hid his wife's cell phone one time, um, you, you wouldn't um, call it him an abuser. But if you keep seeing more and more of these things, and then, so the totality helps you figure that out. I also think one of the challenges is, if you're not a witness to it, how do you prove what really happened? Because you get he said, she said. Often, in the counseling, if you just ask questions and watch them interact, you'll see the anger and the abusive words come out in the session, which makes it easier to recognize, yes, this is the problem. On the other hand, I've had cases where I hear them describing a conversation or an argument they had. It was like they were on two different planets. And I've even resorted to having people use their phone to record what's going on. And <laughs> maybe you're going to catch what's happening, which is beneficial. On the other hand, if they know the phone is on and it's recording and they behave better, that can be a, an unplanned benefit that they would be more hesitant because they know they're going to get caught. And of course, then the answer is, well, God is hearing all of this. And Jesus says, we're going to give account for every idle word. So it's much more important what he's hearing and recording than what I'm going to hear on the record. But again, proof can be a challenge. And again, the culture swings to extremes of even churches just saying to put up with it wrongly, but now an unproven allegation is some. You, according to the Bible, you can't, based on an allegation, treat someone as guilty. And and so as you're investigating, that's where also you may need to bring other people in who are witnesses. Uh, that's that's a challenging aspect of this. 
is it sometimes helpful to to speak to each spouse separately if these things are being alleged with some of the dynamics that are at play? Yes, it can be. Actually, I'm almost thinking now more in terms of when they're fighting and that people sometimes feel safer to say what's going on. Usually when I separate them, I want them to confess their own sins and not tell on each other. But we've had a case where a woman is physically threatened. I think sometimes a man doesn't understand that when you're angry and you'll say, I would never hit her. Well, she can't know that. It smells like murder to her. And Jesus says that's what it is. So sometimes for the sake of safety, you might do that. But you're going to have to bring whatever they say and try to get the stories to square when you bring it back together. It's also um, often wise and compassionate to have a female in the counseling mix or even have a female counsel for a season to be able to draw out what's really going on. Part of what you were bringing up ties into another question that came in. How should a wife respond to the following, which is intense verbal and emotional abuse with the threat, but it's never been carried out of physical abuse. So he's never hit her. But I mean, some of what you're talking about, it can be even just posturing. But in this in this particular case, he's even saying he would harm her, but yet has never done so. How do you deal with that if someone tells you that that's what's happened? That's why you need to counsel in the context of a church that practices church discipline and the elders shepherd the sheep. Because what you're describing is something that she needs to go to Matthew 18, stage two, and get other people to confront him using the authority the church has has given to address that problem, and if necessary, stage three, whatever. One of the most abusive things abusers do, especially when, it's the, when the husband, is he will say, you're not allowed to tell anybody else what I'm doing. But Matthew 18 doesn't say if your brother sins, unless he's your husband, <laughs> confront him, and then you know, bring two or three in unless he's your husband or has other authority over you. I think the wife has the right to get help whether the husband wants to or not. I think sometimes the husband not only will manipulate her by threatening her, if you tell anybody, if you bring in the elders, I'll make it worse for you. Sometimes the wife is also fearful saying, well, if I were to tell others, all these horrible things are going to happen, which is something she can't really be sure of. If the Bible says you have a right to do this and to protect your life, the life of the children, you trust in the Lord and don't lean on your own understanding, rather than just saying this isn't going to work. I had one more thing to add from earlier to just, it's not just the men abusing the women. There is There are more cases over the years I've seen where the wife is verbally and even physically out of control in a very sinful way. There are also quite a few cases where they're both going at it, and it's not you have the sweet little victim over here and the mean bad guy over there. So when when situations are happening and we see that there's a physical, but but especially in the context of this conversation, an, an emotional or verbal abuse that seems to be going on, uh, is separation appropriate? When does that become appropriate in abuse situations? I was thinking in terms of what biblical basis do I give for saying someone is free to get away from a dangerous situation? And one thing that came to my mind was Paul escaping through the wall of the city when people sought his life. We have the right, biblically, to have physical safety. And if somebody's trying to destroy us, kill us, harm us physically, we have the right to get away from that. 
And I would also say that you want to err on the side of safety, that if the wife, assuming it's the wife, it could be the other way around. But if, if the spouse who is being verbally threatened or abused feels themselves to be in, herself to be in danger, I think you err on the side of safety rather than telling them to stay too long and, and deeply regret again when something awful happens. So in the case of physical threat, I would err on the side of getting safety for the purpose of dealing with the hard issues and the guilty party, hoping for restoration, especially if physical abuse has taken place. I'm reluctant. If you make the broad statement, well, verbal abuse is grounds for separation. There are not many marriages where neither party has ever been angry over decades. And that could be stretched way too far. But I have seen cases, like the one I gave, where one spouse is following the other one around the house and shouting at them and won't let them sleep, is you know, without, again, like Tom was saying, an you know, example, hiding cell phone and just being cruel. And I think that that's where it's so helpful to work with godly counsel and church leadership, saying, have I reached the point? Okay, I've done Matthew 18, stage one. We're in stage two. I'm getting church leadership involved. I just, I feel overwhelmed and unsafe in this situation. I want to save my marriage. I, I, I care about my spouse, but I'm absolutely overwhelmed. I can't define exactly where that line is, but if the person, for the sake of their own safety, even if it's not, they're afraid of getting shot or beaten to death, I'm open to that as a temporary option. But I'm also very concerned that if I open that door, that somebody will crack it wide open to what I would not think would reach the level of separation. You have to see what is your motive here? Is your motive you want to honor God and try to save your marriage? Or is the honor you, is your motive that you're just uncomfortable and you don't like being uncomfortable and you think you could get relief by escaping? And that by itself is not a biblical grounds for separating. So there can be a place for putting space in to show the, the consequences of that type of behavior is not acceptable. The church leadership's trying to show that clearly. And then also to, to create space again for seeing, is there really godly sorrow about this type of behavior that keeps happening? Um, but without doing a carte blanche saying, if someone says something mean to you, you definitely can do that. Right. And all those examples you gave gets back to the spectrum of how bad is this? that there are some situations where you would definitely advise them to be apart physically and the church would be acting in terms of discipline all the way down to situations much less severe where you would discourage them from separating physically with the concern that they might like it and instead of pressing on and fulfilling the covenant that they made. So God has given uh, two formal uh a means of authority over the situation. One is the church and the other is the go governing authorities. So regarding um, the victim, the abused person um, going to the church, what I see is they wait too long. They could wait years, decades, and they need to go at the first signs of these things. But God has also given the protection of governing authorities. And Romans 13 says there's no authority except from God. And, and they are there to stop the evildoer. And one situation where the government may need to be called in is if crimes are being committed. 
uh, obviously a physical or sexual abuse of a child, we have no option but to report to the government. But even in the context of domestic abuse, I think that if someone is attacking, threatening the life, physically harming another person, it is appropriate to address that through the sphere of the state. And sometimes the person who is the victim of this is fearful back to, but if I report him, then he will kill me. If I report him, he will divorce me. I'll, we'll lose all our money, whatever the concerns. And sometimes you need to help them to work through that decision and to trust the Lord. And you used an example earlier that for someone who's guilty of this behavior, if their love of Christ doesn't motivate them to be gracious, then we're kind of back to the first use of the law for unbelievers that then punishment may get their attention, that God has designed the rod for the back of fools, not just children, but adult fools too. And it may take consequences imposed on a church level, including approving of a temporary separation to get this guy's attention, or even the government coming and saying, yeah, you, can, you can't slug your wife, and we're going, you're going to get to spend the night in jail, and you're going to pay thousands of dollars to get you out of here, and you're going to potentially go to trial. And those are, again, ideally people for the right motive, that like, I love the Lord, I love my wife, I want to change. But the threat of punishment is something God has also built into both the church and the state as a means of controlling wicked behavior. So as we've talked through some of these things, just bring it back to that initial question where you're counseling a couple, things seem fine when you're talking to them, but you're finding out that he's yelling a lot and it seems like there, there's good reason to think that maybe he's being verbally and emotionally abusive to her. How would you proceed with that couple um, when you, you've just heard that kind of afterwards, after the fact from her? I have to find out from him. The first to plead his case sounds right till someone else comes along and examines him. And sometimes he's going to tell a story where she was yelling too and she was provoking him and pushing his buttons and she's good at it. And one way she wins an argument is to make him yell. I'm not saying that's always the case, but it could be. That's sometimes where you almost need either to reproduce the argument in the counseling room, which happens more often than you might think, or you almost need a recording because you're not sure what really happened. If you have proof that it really happened, you admonish the guy from the Word of God. You admonish the unruly. You threaten him with church discipline. You plead with him to connect his life to the gospel as a person who's received much grace. He's a fool to be dealing with her according to judgment and law. And if necessary, it goes to other levels. You know, Again, it depends what is meant by yelling, but actually screaming hateful threats at your wife, I think, does merit the involvement of church leadership to try to stop that behavior. But there are so many nuances and details of data in a case like this. Each would be, I can't say with a broad description, this is exactly how I would handle it. There would be a range of options based upon the kind of church you're in, based upon their relationship, the fault of each party, et cetera. And then there's the other factor there about um, being enslaved to alcohol, given order to that. It sounds like that's probably involved in some of the anger. And so that's another sin that's going to be needed to be taken seriously with the leadership of the church to make sure he understands that. Right. And a lot of times the alcohol too, it'd be, he made promises to stop, in which case, Apart from the question of whether he should be drinking at all, is he's breaking his word. 
But if this has been a problem, especially if it has fueled the angry outbursts, then there might be in counseling some kind of agreement insisted upon of him eliminating that from his life because it, he can't in faith partake of it and it's causing harm. And if he loves the Lord and he loves his wife, he doesn't want to do something that's going to potentially lead to that. And I've actually been in cases just like that where I can't say from the Bible, absolutely, you're not able to ever have a beer the rest of your life. But if frequently when a person starts drinking, he can't exercise self-control and then it leads to a loss of restraint and like the city with the walls broken down, a man who has no control over his spirit. Well, if alcohol knocks your walls down, then you better stay away from it. And that could be enforced by agreement with the wife, the counselor, in the context of the church, keeping him accountable. A man is to nourish and cherish his wife, Ephesians 5. And he, his job is to look out for the well-being of his wife. If he's doing anything to create this kind of fear in his wife, he's doing the opposite of what um, proper biblical leadership is. And um, it's usually generated by a desire for control. And the desire for control is rooted in fear. And so it's going to be the gospel. It is the only thing that's going to um, take a man who's very insecure and very fearful and have him become restful in the gospel and become a meek and gentle man. And then as um, the love of God um, pushes out that fear, he won't have the need for, for control. He'll see God's in control of all the events of his life and, and know that, that that's best. And then the behavior changes at the heart level first. There's so much hope in the gospel for both the one who is being abused and, and treated poorly and that God's design for the church is to care for um, the victimized. And then there's also so much hope for the one who is enslaved to things like control and fear and anger. Uh, and so it's it's an amazing opportunity and excited that the church has the opportunity to enter into these kinds of situations and see God powerfully work. Jim and Tom, I want to thank you both for helping us as we talk through a difficult topic. Statistics say that these situations of domestic abuse are, are prevalent in our churches and something we need to be thinking through. Uh, we're excited. In 2017, Chris Moles is going to be doing a pre-conference for us for the Summer Institute based on his book, The Heart of Domestic Abuse. And so I want to encourage you to be thinking about maybe bringing some members of your church to come and hear how to approach this issue. And more information about the pre-conference or 2017 Summer Institute, it can all be found on our website or in the podcast show links uh, with this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.